Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. This episode is brought to you by the ASIAL Go app, free and exclusive to ASIAL members. Find the latest industry news, updates, events, publications, resources, and much more. Simply go to your app store and search for ASIAL Go to install. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the ASIAL Security Insider podcast. And today we are speaking with Alex Sidorenko, Chief Risk Officer for Large Corporations by Day and Risk Management Provocateur and uh, Conversationalist by Evening. Alex, welcome to the program and welcome to Australia. Thanks, John. Good to be back. I um, I finished school, uni, uh, back in Melbourne, worked in Sydney for many years uh, before my whole family moved into Perth. And so finally I came back to see to see my you know, parents, grandparents, uh, brothers, brought my family. Ah, fantastic. Um, back to Australia. My my son, I think, my, my son, it's my first uh, time. It's the first time my son has, has ever visited Australia. He was born in Spain. So that, you know, it's, it's a nice reunion. Nice reunion. And uh, thank you for the introduction uh, because people always confuse kind of my social media persona with what I actually do. And while I'm very active and very controversial on LinkedIn or in my Risk Academy blog or on my Risk Academy YouTube channel or during the Risk Awareness Week, which is the global kind of online conference that I run every October, um, during the day, I am... um, just a normal chief risk officer, head of risk and insurance for large corporations. My my last three roles were the chief risk officer for a sovereign fund in Europe, um, chief risk officer for a large fertilizer company, and then the head of risk, operational risk, investment risk and insurance at a group of companies, um, which if it was an Australian company would have been, I think, the fourth largest company in Australia ever, uh, so for quite a large business. And uh, the, the awards I got as the best risk manager in Europe and the best international implementation case study in US um, wasn't kind of for my blog or social media. It was for the actual models and the work that uh, my team did in the company uh, where we were working. So I, uh, be, beside being a controversial blogger, <laughs> I'm actually a pretty good risk manager, I'd like to think. Now, you speaking of the models that you use, you come up with some pretty interesting and quirky ideas around some of the models. Like there was one you were doing a while ago where you were trying to outwit uh, government lotto systems and all sorts of stuff. I mean, tell us a little bit about where some of these left of centre ideas come from and then we can start talking about how that plays into a lot of myths and misconceptions that people have around risk management. Uh, so th- thank you for reminding me of this because I have such you know, warm feelings about that time. Um, and that question, you, have, you, you don't realize how insightful that case study is um, because it, it has so many you know, important risk management lessons. Um, lesson number one, uh, we had a decision to make and I gathered a small community of quantitative risk managers and we were able to solve that problem, build a model in literally like a couple of nights. Tell and us a little again, bit about what the problem was that you were trying to solve. And so, and that's kind of, that's the, that, that's the, the, the first takeaway from that story was you can do anything with quantitative modeling. The second story, and this is very insightful for the risk professional, for just the general profession, is that we don't really have to recreate the wheel because all we did is uh, we had a friend who used to work in in a, in a lottery as the head of risk, and she said there were stories of one math professor 
and few MIT students in US who did just that. And uh, it's totally legal. And in fact, in some countries like Australia, it's actually encouraged where you get a group of people together and because they can together collectively purchase more tickets, there are certain games in a year called roll down, uh, roll down games where the probability of winning is the same, but the um, price per ticket won is greater because it's, 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 it's really great marketing for the lotteries. And so from time to time, if it, if nobody wins a jackpot for a while, uh, people get discouraged. So sales drop. So to encourage the sales back, um, some lottery co companies, uh, most of them are government based. So, you know, it's all legit. And uh, some lottery companies actually do those special drawdown, um, lotteries lottery games where you can actually make more money than your normal kind of average winnings and there the um, the more money you invest the higher the chance that you'll have a positive return unless you know certain things happen and you, we've, we've actually built a model uh, for that so the second lesson in that case study is that we didn't create anything we just thought oh wow wow the us guys you know really found it and uh, were very successful. Like, they made millions in, in, in doing that. And we thought our local lottery has exactly the same marketing strategy. Can we replicate? And in fact, we were able to replicate it. In the first game, we had 60% return, which is huge because it literally took us three days to model. And we found like it, it was it was such an amazing risk management case study because we had we managed our operational risk because one of the problems was we needed to purchase thousands and thousands of tickets. That's actually really difficult to do. Uh, right. Manually, it would take you like a month and you and you only had you know, three days to do it, but it would take you a month. And even electronically to to select the tickets on the website and the website like, like it. it it uncovered so many risk management problems and we dealt with compliance risks, tax risks, legal risks. We had a treasurer uh, allocated who would make, keep all the money because we would like chip in into the pool and then somebody needs to keep the pool. And um, we had papers, like we had signed contracts between all the participants, all the risk modelers. So you know, everybody took the responsibility that we know because at the time we played, there was a 9% probability that we could lose up to 60% of our investment. And then there was 91% probability that we would make 40 to like 150% return we ended after taxes. And we ended up making a 60% return, which was you know, amazing um, given the amount of effort was involved. So this was such a powerful case study where a group of quants got together um, looked at the opportunity, modeled the opportunity. And, and I think the, f the third and the final fascinating thing in that uh, story was that we started the, uh, we started solving the problem by building the most sophisticated advanced model that we could think of. We literally replicated the models that the uh, lotto company was using. Or, or maybe we even created something better. But it, so, so we we went way overboard in terms of methodology, only to realize two years later because we continued playing those games, only to realize two years later that we literally need to model one single factor, and it's like a one-line formula. 
instead of building this humongous model that replicated the whole logic of lottery, um, we actually didn't need that. Like there was a one single factor that mattered. And if that factor was above certain point threshold, then we would play and we would get positive return. And if, if it was below, then we, we would not play. And we missed quite a lot of games. We chose to stay out of the game because it wasn't profitable anymore. And that was just, that was amazing how you start with something big and sophisticated only to realize that you actually need a small portion and the actual model that we now use is like a kindergarten one line formula, which is, uh, you know, which is ridiculous. So yeah, that was, that was an absolutely fascinating case study. I, by the way, I, um, I wrote a lot of articles. Like I actually showed our models that we use, like the logic and everything. So I, I was, I was quite proud of that because that's, that's kind of that's risk management making money in real life yeah and uh something you can't do with a heat map or any other you know qualitative um methodology for uh, for risk analysis but something we were able to um to do quite powerfully using even basic basic models so risk academy blog uh, um has has like a three, I think, three-part series of articles, and it it ends with a picture of risk managers sitting in the pub, you know, drinking beer, going like, "Oh, success! Yeah. Uh, we've 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 proven that risk management can make you a lot of money." And I suppose the thing that everyone who's listening to this right now is thinking is, "Where do I get hold of this uh, risk management equation so that I can go out and play the lottery and make a fortune of my own?" Yeah, well, it um, well, in that article, literally, you know, read the article, and uh, I think it explains it relatively well. Or you know, if if it doesn't, just ask me uh, on social media. And Australia, by the way, is one of very few countries in the world that has those marketing roll down um, games. I haven't done the calculations for the Australian game. Uh, yet, uh, but I suspect it's actually most of the time non-profit, not profitable. Because I was surprised at just how frequently Australia does that, and um, the you know whoever is like the, I can't remember the in WA they have like a, a separate entity, and the, but then all the other states have another lottery, but it's kind of it's all the same game. Um, so anyway, I was a bit surprised how often that does, which kind of indicates that it's probably not that profitable. Um, but one of the last games we played had a 16% after taxes pro, uh, profitability um which is you know not not amazing but 16% is still a lot yeah it's still you know compared to i don't know how how, how many percentage points you get in the bank deposit like one or two um it's still it's still pretty solid um and you do of course it's not a risk free thing you still have a, like a 10 to 20% probability that you can lose half your money yeah um so it's 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 one of those things where if you understand the risks that you feel very comfortable about taking the risk, but if you don't and you just rely on your intuition or some qualitative risk methodology, then you probably will not. Right. You'll just miss this opportunity. Well, I guess the fact that you started out with such a comprehensive, wide reaching and deeply thought through model and then ended up reducing it down to, you know, as you put it, a, a kindergarten single line model leads us into the next part of the conversation, which is, the common myths and misconceptions that people have around risk. And perhaps that's a good place to kick off. What are some of the more common misconceptions you see people laboring under? Well, so this is again a very, very fascinating uh, topic. I think the biggest misconception in risk management is that risk management is somehow new and Australian standard 4360 was the kind of the birthplace of risk management. 
this this couldn't be further from the truth. It, and in fact, it's so it's such a blatant lie that it is ridiculous how it just derails the whole risk profession, uh, because risk management started in 15th century as the kind of this game of chance trying to figure out how to make money in roulette and card games and just basically just this basic probability of uh, trying to figure out how do we make decisions under uncertainty can we get an edge in uh, um, probabilistic games so the foundation of risk management which is this mathematical side of it is like 500 years old and then about 100 years old a new science started evolving, which was called decision science. And that basically talks about how do we make different choices under uncertainty? How do we compare the trade-off and the risk with the kind of return on, on that risk? How do we take enough of the right risks? How do we make money that is more than the risks that we take. And so that's 100 years old. Again, very, very old, ancient. And then about 70 to 80 years ago, a, a new field of study started developing into the kind of the neuroscience, behavioral economics. How does human brain work when we make these decisions? Because it's one thing to say, you know, people should optimize their risk return. But then when you actually do it, you realize that humans are not behaving rationally. In fact, uh, Dan Ariely has a book, wonderful book, an Israeli scientist has a wonderful book called Predictably Irrational. As in our default behavior is actually irrational most of the time. The more complex the problem, the more irrational we are. And um, the, the less uh, kind of, the, the less uh, repeated, the newer the problem, the more irrational we tend to be. And so this youngest field of study is at least 70 years old and this field of study has you know, two Nobel prizes in economics already in 2002 and 2014 the mathematical side of risk has numerous Nobel prizes and they're like very very old and then something happened about 30 to 40 years ago consultants and big four and auditors and um, uh, so some of the um, some of the financial services decided to hijack this scientific complex idea of trying to manage and figure out risk and quantify risk and trade risk uh, reward trade-offs. They hijacked it and dumped it down to a nice little picture. Like you, know, they usually do. They they come up with some sort of matrix on how you have two dimensions and you map one dimension against another, and that supposedly should tell you some sort of picture, some, some, some sort of uh, conclusion. And, and so risk management was literally hijacked into and dumbed down, completely lost touch with the original probability theory, because whatever this kind of current version of corporate risk management, whatever this, you know, um, risk matrix in the appendix of 4360, this, this fails like year seven math. So this was should this this should never have been allowed because it contradicted the very foundation uh, of risk management. But because it sold well and because it was easy to understand, and this was kind of this leads now to the misconception is that risk management is easy to understand for everyone. Like every auditor on the planet thinks he can be a risk manager, which was which is an absolute joke, of course. Um, but then there's this misconception that risk management is colors it's about having a conversation you know figuring out what is high and what is low you know what is important what is not important couldn't be further from the truth uh, but so once the risk management was hijacked 
the misconception, the first kind of the biggest misconception that I come across is that people forgot the other 500 years of history and they think the kind of the starting point, the cutoff for the risk profession is this, you know, hijacked version, which is basically like a baby summary of what risk management is in many ways contradicting the very nature of these sciences, for example, like cognitive biases have been completely ignored by the risk profession until like 20, uh, 2008, 2009, completely ignored, like it just didn't exist. They already had two Nobel Prizes by that time. Uh, oh, sorry, they had one, the first one, the next one was in 2014. Uh, uh, they already had one Nobel Prize by that time. And that whole field of study with everything, that, all the conclusions, all the research that they found, um, that was completely disregarded by, uh, by, by the kind of new, new risk professionals. So I think the biggest misconception is that thinking that risk management is whatever the standards are saying, instead of looking kind of at the textbooks, which have been written, you know, 500 years ago, 400 years ago, three, you know, 200 and even 50 years ago, that is the actual foundational, foundational, uh, science. It's like, it, it's like trying to become a doctor by reading a brochure at the doctor's reception instead of studying anatomy, biology, and chemistry. Like, can you imagine being a surgeon and instead of looking at the foundational sciences of what you're trying to do and trying to understand them, you build your knowledge based on some sort of marketing brochure that kind of you know, is on the table at the at, at the reception. Uh, so I think that's that's the biggest misconception. Thinking that risk management is uh, whatever the standard tells you, instead of kind of going back to the sources. So am I correct in hearing you and and assuming that what you're actually saying is that the standards that we're currently adhering to around risk man, risk management have taken risk management from a hard science and turned it into a soft science. Exactly. And the regulators did even worse. The regulators took, basically, there are like you know, two versions of risk management, the hard science and then the, the marketing kind of high level um, packaging or wrapper, like window dressing version of risk management. And the re- regulators probably looked at the two and thought, okay, well, this one, science is complicated. That's like, we don't get it. So let's, let's not Let's 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 disregard that it exists. And they literally said, and in many countries that is regulated, they said this marketing brochure is what risk management is all about. And so now there's the whole kind of world pretending that if you wanted to do risk management, doing this whatever this marketing brochure says is sufficient. It's somehow useful enough to generate value, help decisions and like and, and everything else. And many, um, many organizations have since realized that, of course, it was never enough. It, it actually just wastes resources and wastes time, adds no value whatsoever. Um, but some companies are brave enough to kind of go back to the roots. And many com- companies are not brave enough. They just pretend this kind of this play pretend. They pretend uh, to continue doing you know, risk reports and, and, and then... Uh, looking surprised how that makes no difference whatsoever to how their company uh, decisions are made and, and how it affects the performance of the uh, of the organizations. Okay, so there are going to be a lot of security organization managers um, who either themselves use those security risk standards 
or have people on board that use those security risk standards or importantly, uh, spend money on consultants who use those security risk standards to run risk assessments for them. Why, in your opinion, is that flawed? Well, okay. So, the and this is uh, this is this is very important. Um, for most of the methodologies that currently exist in the kind of risk world, the, the security risk world, there have been plenty of studies that in detail describe what works better and what works worse. There, there's this um, whole idea around backtesting and testing the performance of the methodology. And certain methodologies, qualitative methodologies, time after time prove that they actually add more error, so they make your decisions. You think you, you use a heat map to prioritize risks, but it actually turns out that most of the time your priorities are so wrong that you're better off not doing anything at all. And so, there are literally textbooks written on multiple floors of um, these kind of uh, new uh, new methods. I call them risk management one methods. And the easiest place to start is Doug Hubbard's book, The Failure of Risk Management, Why It's Broken and How to Fix It. Because uh, with me not doing justice, remembering all the different studies and referencing uh, Tony Cox and all the other research and you know, Philip Tetlock and all the other research papers on the topic. He already kind of created this easy to read summary of why it doesn't work and why it was actually never meant to work and why you should be very cautious of using it for any decision of significance um, and, and the alternative. And then me kind of immediately goes, well, how do we substitute this for something that is still as simple, um, but actually has less error in it so you know performs better uh, so i i just forward everybody to the to to um, to that book on my blog risk academy uh, blog i have my six best risk management books and this is again this is very indicative of where we are as a profession um it's it's really easy to find if you just google best risk management books it's uh it's the number one google result globally uh, and um out of these 16 books, I think only one, actually two, have the word risk in the title. And that is because most of the literature written on the topic of risk management is actually just spinning those same myths and really kind of taking the down the wrong rabbit hole and uh, doing a lot, a lot of damage for the risk profession. Like for example, the most famous book on risk management called Enterprise Risk Management, 90% uh, of it is just outrageous lies, just outrageous things that really kind of destroy careers if people would try to do that because they, they, they'll they probably just end up being fired because everybody will realize that the king is naked. And um, and the, the books that have the word risk, which are good, is literally called The Failure of Risk Management. And then, then my book is called Guide to Risk Management 2, um, I don't know why I called it guide to risk management, uh, to effective risk management or something. I, I wrote it so so many many years ago. I still kept the word risk in the title, but all the other books have no word risk in the title because they're all about decision making, um, analysis, quantitative analysis, uh, cognitive biases, uh, heuristics, all of the things that is risk management, but was never called risk management because risk management was already hijacked for this uh, kind of window dressing thing. Right. 
So given that we're sort of coming up to, to time on the podcast, if I wanted to turn the ship around, so to speak, and I was a security manager or a risk manager within a large organization, and I thought, well, this is okay, this is interesting, I need to reevaluate what I'm doing. We have those books that you've mentioned that we go to security risk management blog and we'll find the list of the top six books there. But what do I need to be doing to reframe my thinking around risk management? So the, I think the biggest thing, and this is the starting point for any risk analysis, the, there's a, this is what Taleb uh, calls X versus F of X. Um, we, we have to realize that what have we have been doing in the past is what he calls X, which means we look at the risk as its own standalone independent entity. And we're trying to understand what is the risk, how big is the risk, how significant is the risk, and we're trying to mitigate the risk. And that's one way of looking at things, is you look at X as if like risk is this entity that deserves attention. And then the alternative, complete alternative to that is F of X or function of risk. And that's where we have a decision at hand. For example, we have a budget for the whole company, or we have an investment project for the company, or there's a choice that the management is trying to make between A technology and B technology, or we're trying to figure out should we build a bigger plant or a smaller chemical plant, you know, like we did, for example. We have some sort of decision at hand. And then what we're interested in is figuring out, well, what, how, do, how do risks collectively affect that decision. For example, somebody says, the, the, the project team is saying, we will finish this project in six months. And then the risk manager can come in and say, well, what are the chances of that happening? And what's the actual range of timeframes that is reasonable given the different risks, including um, uh, security risks? And that could be, they say they will finish in six months, but it actually could be seven to nine months. That, that's a more realistic range. So immediately you realize that their initial hypothesis is just unrealistic because they've completely disregarded the risk, the risks. And so coming back to your question, the first and the most important thing that security risk professionals can do is stop thinking of their risk as some sort of standalone thing, because literally the only people interested in security risk just as a standalone entity is are your listeners. CFOs don't care, CEOs don't care, boards don't care. They care how security risks together with other risks affect their objectives, bonuses, uh, cash flows, something meaningful to them, some sort of metric that is meaningful to them. So switching the conversation from this risk is worth you know, 20 million to saying this risk will affect our next year's you know, cash flow or budget by 5 million or 10 million is a much more meaningful, meaningful conversation that kind of immediately gets attention. And it it places the risk where it belongs as part of some sort of important uh, business decision. So that in my mind is kind of this, you know, number one step to think about. And um, the immediate question in, in Ulysses' mind is probably, well, how do we do that? Well, because this has been going on, kind of this F of X type of risk management has been going on for about 500 years. All of the answers are in the books. Like there's so much written on the topic. To start investigating, start start with Doug's book. Uh, read the book by Carl Spetzler on decision quality, which ex explains how you can kind of integrate risk analysis into the actual decision making process, and and, and you you just become kind of you uncover the this whole other world of much more valuable, much more useful uh, risk management. I um, 
I, I, I just want to, I guess, finish with kind of, you know, on a positive note. By me switching to that 10 years ago, I've never really, first of all, risk management was never seen as a cost function because I made so much money for the shareholders that uh, we, you know, I had no trouble justifying extra investment in controls, extra staff, software, um, because I was able to show how that cost is actually insignificant compared to the actual risk exposure that, that we're reducing. So this kind of better risk management, which I call risk management too, it really pays off. Pays yeah. off in terms of respect. Pays off in terms of effort. Pays pays off in terms of time it takes uh, you know, to do things. It, it, in my mind, I've been doing this for you know, seventeen years now, and the first kind of the first five years were risk management one, and the next uh, uh, twelve have been risk management two. I, I really never looked back. Like it, it's just, it's it's not it's it. It's not a difficult decision right now for me. Like looking back at what I, what I've been doing and the kind of impact I was able to achieve almost instantaneously with proper quantitative risk analysis, it's just a no-brainer. Yeah, and I think one of the biggest examples of that is, if I'm reading you correctly, if we use the most recent pandemic as an example, you would constantly get people judging the quality of decisions by the outcome, and it's like, no, you can never ever, and should you never ever ever judge the quality of a decision by the outcome of that decision, there's a lot more that needs to go into that. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there's um, um, Annie Duke is a, an interesting writer in U- US and she has this term called resulting, which is a mistake people make. They think something was good or bad rega- depending on what the outcome is. And uh, for example, I once presented uh, a case study to the Ministry of Finance saying that 70% of the time we would not need extra government funding and uh, the strategy will be implemented. But there's a 30% probability that the strategy will still fail and we will require extra government funding. Um, and then if it happens, if, if we're lucky, 70% of the time everything will be fine and it's 30% of the time we could be unlucky and uh, we would need extra government funding. Uh, but we, we, we warned them up front saying, if this is the strategy, if, if this is the probability of success you're comfortable with, then be mindful that in five years' time, there is 30% probability, which is not, not low. It's not insignificant. Um, you know, something, may, something bad may happen. Fantastic. Alex, I'm sorry it's been short, but if people would like to know more about you, find out more information about what you're doing or change their thinking about, about risk management, where do they go? Uh, so I think that there are kind of there are three places uh, uh, to start. Uh, Risk Academy blog, riskacademy.blog. It's something that I've been running for many many years now, and it's uh, it's quite popular. You know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, view it every year. Um, that's a good place if you like reading. Uh, Risk Academy YouTube channel, which is easy. It's like YouTube at uh, dash at Risk Academy. Um, that has a lot of videos of me and other like-minded individuals sharing their case studies and showing how uh, it's not just hypothetical theories. Like we literally, we've tried that and we've done that and we've actually made quite a lot of money along the way um, for for the companies. And um, the final place, if you don't believe me, then every October I invite about 40 of some of the most respected risk professionals from all over the world, you know, Stanford professors, NASA engineers, and uh, risk managers on some of the largest infrastructure projects 
and they share their case studies, which is kind of aligned with this overall thinking of uh, what I've just described. So Risk Awareness Week is really easy to find if you Google it. It's one of the biggest online conferences. Every every year, about 5,000 people from 120 countries join and watch. And all of these workshops, are, this year is going to be the fifth year. So we had four years of Risk Awareness Weeks. Um, it's almost 200 workshops just sitting there online for free, available to anybody who cares to to listen and you don't have to take my word for it you can actually you know, listen to other people share exactly the same story for example doug hubbard whose book i'm recommending as a starting point um has spoken at every single risk awareness week so i, I, well, I think so yes i think every single one so so uh, there you go you don't have to trust my word on it you can just listen to other people say kind of exactly the same things Alex, look, thank you very much again for your time. It's been a pleasure having you on the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, if you've enjoyed this podcast, you can find more like it on the ASIAL webpage at www.asial.com.au under news and then podcasts. You can also find it on Blurberry, Spotify, iTunes, Google Play and uh, Podbean, all the other great places that you find podcasts. And finally, don't forget this episode was brought to you by the ASIAL Go app, free and exclusive to ASIAL members. Find the latest industry news, updates, events, publications, resources, and more. Simply go to your app store and search for Azial Go to install. Thank you once again, and we look forward to speaking to you on the next podcast.